Well, we're back in Jonah. Uh, last week, Abner covered Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, and he showed us three acts of God's providence and God's sovereignty in bringing someone to salvation. And this was more of a test for me than it is for anybody else. What were the three points that he mentioned, that he uh, talked about? Well, he said, first, God gets the people to the truth. God gets the people to the truth. Second, God gives the people a heart for the truth, a heart for nothing but the truth. And then thirdly, God grants the people the truth itself. And so once the person is brought to this point, they're at a fork in the road to accept the truth or to reject the truth, to submit to God or not to submit to God, to repent or not to repent. And each one of us who is a believer faced this point at a certain time, and we had to answer the question, will we submit to God or will we not submit to God? And each person who is not a believer here is facing this question generally now and maybe even specifically today. And this is where we find the pagan sailors on the boat as they've received the truth, and now they're at this crossroads responding to the truth. So let's go to Jonah chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. That's our portion for today. But let's start with verse 7 so that we get the full context of what's going on. The men are on the boat. Jonah is fleeing from God. There's a storm that hits the sea. They wake Jonah up and they tell him, what is going on? Why is there such a storm? And so at this point, we pick up in verse 7, and this is what we read. Then each man said to the other, come. Let us have the lots fall so we may know on whose account this calamitous evil has struck us. So they had the lots fall and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamitous evil struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this is our portion for today, verse 10. Then the men became greatly fearful, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become quiet for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So he said to them, Lift me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become quiet for you. For uh, you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come up upon you. Verse 13, however, the men rode desperately to return to dry land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy against them. Then they called on Yahweh and said, ah, oh, Yahweh, we earnestly pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Yahweh, as you have pleased, you have done. So they lifted Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stood still from its raging. Then the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they made vows. As you look at the verses, we can see that the sailors are at a crossroads. They have heard the truth. And now they're facing a decision to submit to God or not to submit to God. And their response, their decision is 
to submit to God. And as we look at these verses, we see three components of their conversion. Their fear of God, their prayer to God, and their devotion to God. Now, as we think about this, we first of all see their fear of God. When the pagan sailors hear that Jonah disobeyed God, they become afraid. And we learn that ultimately they become afraid of God himself. And there are various aspects to this fear. We immediately see an intensity in their fear. In verse 10 it says, Then the men became greatly fearful. The text literally says the men feared with a great fear. It's an emphatic fear. It's not like the fear that they had before in verse 5. The men were fearful because of the storm. The circumstances terrified them. But here the fear is greater and the fear is stronger. In fact, they're responding to verse 9 where Jonah tells them about Yahweh who made the sea and the dry land. So now their fear stems from their knowledge of who Yahweh is and what he does and what he's in control of. And then in verse 16, the text explicitly states that they feared Yahweh. It says, the men greatly feared Yahweh. They're now afraid not only of the circumstances, but also of the one who causes these circumstances. Their fear, they exclaim to Jonah this question, what is this you have done? And this is not a question of curiosity, as if they don't know what he has done. They already know. The text says right after that, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. They're in shock. They're in awe. They're in disbelief that Jonah is fleeing from his God. That's the substance of their question. And this question is asked in the Bible five times. And in every single time, it is an expression of immense outrage. And you can imagine where it appears in the first time, in the first time in the Bible. Where was the most, the highest expression of outrage in the Bible? And that's in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned. After Adam and Eve sinned, God comes to them and he addresses them one by one. And then he comes to Eve and he confronts Eve for taking the fruit. And he says to her, what is this you have done? Eve had just committed an act that brought the entire human race into sin, into death. And so God says to her, what is this you have done? This is a monumental event in human history. And now the sailors are outraged at what Jonah is doing. And so they say to him, what is this you have done? And even if the sailors didn't know Genesis 3, even if they didn't know that God asked the same question of Eve, the fact that their question echoes and copies exactly the words of God shows the intensity of their outrage and it shows the intensity of their fear. Now, in addition to intensity, we also see an urgency to obey in their fear. Their fear compels them to obey God and to obey God immediately. Once they understand the situation, they say, what should we do to you that the sea may become quiet for us? So they go from the question, what have you done, 
to the question, what can we do in order to correct this? So unlike Jonah, their desire is actually to obey Yahweh. They now understand that Jonah has sinned and that he has offended God. They understand that God does not tolerate disobedience. And they understand that fundamentally, the wages of disobedience is death. And this is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And they're seeing this play out right in front of their eyes. Jonah sinned. Jonah disobeyed God. And now Jonah is about to die. And those associated with him, the sailors who were inadvertently helping him flee from God, all of them are about to die too, as far as they can see. Of course, their goal is to avoid death. So the sailors are beginning to understand the sinfulness of sin. The sailors are beginning to understand the holiness of God, and they're beginning to understand that they themselves need to have a personal response to God, otherwise they will perish. Because they saw that the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And so they had an urgency in their fear to do what God wanted. They had an urgency to obey God. And then finally, we see that they have a sanctity for life in their fear. Fear of taking somebody, somebody's life. Fear of ending someone's life, which is the exact opposite of what Jonah's perspective was. Jonah actually shows that he doesn't care if people die. He even prefers that some people die, and ultimately, he prefers that he dies himself. We've already seen that he wants the Ninevites to die. He wants them to die in their sin because he refused to go to preach to them. Now we see that he doesn't care that these sailors die because he knows that all this is happening because of him and that he's endangering their life. He's the culprit. He's the guilty one. And he's still refusing to obey God. Here in verse 12, Jonah says, I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. He knows that he's guilty. And what's his response to this? It's not repentance. Let the sailors die. That's his perspective. Let the sailors die. Let the Ninevites die. He goes even one step further and says, even I will die. I'm happy to die if that means I don't preach to the Ninevites. He says, lift me up and hurl me into the sea. You know what he's saying here? He says, me go to the Ninevites over my dead body. He says, I would rather die than to preach to these Gentiles. Now we could think, wow, Jonah is being honorable. He's rather than, you know, have the sailors die, he's willing to offer himself as a sacrifice so that they don't die. But the reality is that God is not asking him to make this sacrifice. God's commanding him to go to Nineveh, obey God, and no one dies. But he would rather disobey God and have many people die. His proposition to die is not sacrifice at all. It's the extremest form of disobedience. And sadly, this is the exact opposite of what Christ did for us. Christ died so that we would live. Jonah wants to die so that the Gentiles would die. Think about John 3.16, the verse we all know. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son to die, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jonah says that if my death means that these Gentiles perish and they perish in their sins, then I will gladly die. That's Jonah's perspective. You see this in Jonah and you realize that even though Jonah says, I fear God, which he said earlier, his disobedience shows that he truly does not fear God. And then you think about yourself. When we disobey God, when we continue in our sin, this shows the very same thing, that we do not fear God. I mentioned Ecclesiastes 12.13 a few weeks ago where Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. These two acts go hand in hand. You show that you fear God by keeping his commandments. And as we look at Jonah, we see that the fear within the pagan men is much greater than the fear within the man of God. Now, in contrast to Jonah, who doesn't care if the people die, the sailors do fear to take Jonah's life, even though they know that he is the guilty one. Even though he says to them, throw me into the sea, in verse 13, you can see it says, However, the men rowed desperately to return to dry land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy against them. There is a Jewish tradition that explains or tries to explain this scene creatively to show the true fearfulness of these men to throw Jonah overboard. So they're in the storm, they're in the boat, everything around them is chaotic. And they learn that, okay, if they throw Jonah over, the storm stops. Well, they say, we can't. This, this would be martyr. We're afraid to do this. We're not going to do this. So they keep rowing. But then they get to a point where they have no option. The storm is getting stronger and stronger. So what they do is they take Jonah. They walk over to the edge of the boat. And they start lowering him gradually. And as soon as the feet get into the water and get to the ankles and get to the knees... The storm stops. It's completely silent. And they say, great. So they pull Jonah back in and put him in the boat. Immediately, the storm starts up again. (laughs) Everything is chaotic around them. And so they say, okay, we have to do this again. So they take Jonah back to the edge. They start lowering him again. The storm stops. And they say, great. So they bring him back in. The storm starts up again. So they say, we have no choice. So they toss him, right? That's... What the tradition gets right here is that the men were afraid of throwing Jonah overboard. They were afraid of taking Jonah's life. In fact, they feared doing this so much that instead of throwing Jonah out, they initially, as it says, rode desperately to get to dry land. And this expression, rode desperately, literally means they dug like you would dig with a shovel. They dug their oars into the water. And this is the same word used to describe breaking through a wall. In Ezekiel 12, Ezekiel is used as a sign to the Israelites, and he is told to go to break through the wall in order to show the people that they're going to be in exile for a long time. So the waves, 
the storm. These are the walls that the Israelites, are, that the sailors are trying to break through in order to get to dry land. But of course they can't because God is the God of dry land and the sea. This is the God who created the dry land and the sea. If you go to Genesis 1.9, it says there that God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. That's the exact same dry land. That's the exact same word that we see in Jonah. Then verse 10, it says, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. The same word that we see in Jonah. God created the dry land. God created the sea. God is in control of the dry land and he is in control of the sea. And so the men realize that they can't resist. They can't win against God because God is too powerful. He's in charge. He's in control of all of these elements. Whether it's land or sea or animals or humans, God is in control. Remember Balaam? He tried to go on a donkey and to go and curse Israel. Well, God's in control of the animals, so God stopped the donkey, and the donkey wouldn't go any further until God allowed the donkey to go further. You can think about Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as he was known Saul before he became a believer. He was going to Damascus to persecute the Christians. God stopped him on the road and said, Why are you kicking against the goads? So now God stops the ship from getting to dry land, and the the men realize that they cannot win against God. This is the God that the sailors are introduced to. This is the God that the sailors begin to fear. And their fear for God is intense, and it's urgent, and it has sanctity for life. And here's the sad irony of all this something that should convict all of us. Jonah understands God more than the sailors, and yet he fears God less than the sailors. The sailors understand God less than Jonah, and yet they fear God more than Jonah does. So you see someone like Jonah, and you begin to ask yourself, do I live out my life in fear and in reverence to God? But you think about this principle even on a broader level. You realize that fear alone, fear of God alone, actually does not save you. It cannot save you. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. The demons believe in God and the demons are afraid of God. And this does not save them. Your fear of God has to bring you to a certain point of desperation in which you begin to call out to God and you beg him for mercy. And this is the fear that the sailors experience. This fear brings them to the end of themselves. They realize that they're helpless and that they're hopeless. And so they do the only thing that they can do. They cry out to God. And this is our second component of salvation, second component of conversion. conversion. When the pagan sailors come to a point of desperation, they pray to God for mercy. They cry out to God for mercy. 
Look at verse 14. And you can notice immediately who the focus of their prayer is. It says, Then they called on Yahweh and they said, Ah, O Yahweh. Who are they crying out to? It's not their own gods. It's not even some general god. They're crying out specifically and exclusively to Yahweh. This means that they see no other way of deliverance for themselves except through Yahweh. Initially, when they were afraid, they cried out to all of their gods. In verse 5, it says that the sailors became fearful and every man cried to his God. And they were even evangelistic about this because the captain came to Jonah and said, cry out to your God, maybe he will save us. But now, at this point, once they hear the truth, they've abandoned their gods because their gods were absolutely useless. In fact, when they cried to their gods to stop the storm, the storm got even stronger and more intense. That was the result of them praying to their gods. And the truth is that that's what happens when you pray to man-made gods. Nothing happens. Listen to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verses 5, 6, and 7. They describe uh, what man-made idols are really good for. Verse 5 says, They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. This is why it's such foolishness to worship and to pray to idols. When you pray to nothing, nothing happens. It's very mathematical. (laughs) But at this point, the sailors have turned from their gods, and they've turned to Yahweh, and they've begun praying to Yahweh. And when we look at their prayer, we see that there are two parts to their prayer. God's sovereignty specifically over their lives, and God's sovereignty over everything else in general. When they pray, they first confess that their life and their death is in God's hands. So they cry out to God for mercy. In verse 14, they say, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Now, this is the very hope that the sailors had from the very beginning. In verse 6, The captain said essentially the same thing to Jonah. He said, perhaps if you cry out to your God, perhaps your God will be concerned with us so that we will not perish. That's what they were worried about. That's what they were thinking about. But at that time, the captain and all of the sailors, they were praying to any God and to every God, hoping that some God would save them. But at this point, it's all different. Now the sailors know that they're praying to God, to God who alone has the power to save them. And then the sailors say, and do not put innocent blood on us. And they're acknowledging here a very specific characteristic about God, something that we can't miss. They're saying that God is judge. God is the judge. They're saying to God, do not judge us for this act, for this man's life. And this means that they understand that there is sin and that murder is sin. They understand that there is justice and that there is a standard of holiness and that Yahweh God is holy. 
They understand that they're at the mercy of God because God will judge them according to his standard of holiness. So they turn to God and they plead with God in a specific way to have mercy on them. Then after they acknowledge God's sovereignty over their lives in a very specific way, they then confess God's sovereignty in general over everything. They say, as you have pleased, you have done. And they're saying here that unlike their gods who can't do anything, you actually do what you please. And this is exactly what the psalmist said in Psalm 115 that we just looked at. Right before the psalmist says that the man-made gods are useless and they can't do anything, in verse 3 the psalmist says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. These are the words, the very words that the men use. Yahweh does as he pleases. So probably without even realizing that they were quoting the psalm there or using those words, they confess that Yahweh is the all-powerful God. And every other God? Nothing. And this is the essence of salvation. Calling out to God because only God can save. Listen to Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32 says, And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. And this is the point that the sailors came to understand and that they responded to, that only Yahweh can save them. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 13, takes this verse from Joel and it applies this verse to Jesus. And it says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by applying this verse to Jesus, the New Testament shows that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the Savior. And so only Jesus can save you. And so you have verses like Acts 4.12, which says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And this is exactly what Jesus said of himself in John 14.6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot be saved through Islam. You cannot be saved through Buddhism. You cannot be saved even if you're a good person because you're not a good person. You can only be saved through Jesus who is the full representation of Yahweh God and who alone forgives sin. And the pagan sailors who previously worshipped all of these different gods, they were brought to the understanding that only Yahweh can save them. And so Yahweh was the one that they cried out to. And then after they cry to Yahweh, we see their next step in their relationship to Yahweh, and that is their devotion to God, their devotion to God. And this is the third com component of salvation. Now, first of all, we see the sailors here align their actions with the will of God by carrying out what they now understand is the will of God, to throw Jonah overboard. 
Verse 15 says, So they lifted Jonah up, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea stood still from its raging. Now, on the one hand, we know that this is the will of God because the text uses language in this passage, passage that links this passage to the very beginning that uses the same language to express God's will. Initially, at the beginning, when Jonah gets on the ship to disobey God, it says in verse 4 that Yahweh hurls a storm onto the sea. And this storm threatens the lives of the sailors, and so they try to preserve their lives. And to preserve their lives, they begin to hurl cargo off the ship. And that's their response at God hurling the storm onto the sea. Then when they speak to Jonah and Jonah is exposed as the culprit, Jonah himself says to the sailors, hurl me into the sea and then you'll be saved. Then the storm will stop. And so finally the sailors do hurl Jonah into the sea. The point here is that God hurled the storm so that Jonah would be hurled off of the ship. Jonah became just like the cargo. He was a useless object at this point, weighing down the ship, endangering the lives of the sailors. And there was only one use to him, for him to be hurled off the ship so that the lives of the sailors, sailors are preserved. And so that's what happens. And we see that the men do this reluctantly, but they do this when they realize that this is the will of God. Then we also see that this is the will of God because the storm stops raging as soon as they throw Jonah away. God has hurled the storm because Jonah was fleeing. Now that Jonah is no longer fleeing, but he's now floundering in the water trying to survive, he's drowning, right? God stops the storm. And the language here also is very significant. It says that the sea stood still from its raging. Well, the reality is that the sea doesn't stand and the sea doesn't rage. A person stands and a person rages. And that's exactly the point of the text here. It's personifying the sea. It's doing this to show us that just like a person should obey God, the sea does obey God. And we've already seen this with other objects at the beginning of the narrative where they obey God while Jonah is disobeying God. The wind obeys God when God hurls the wind on the sea. The boat was thinking to obey God, to align itself with the will of God. And now the sea immediately obeys God. And so the storm stops and the storm submits to God. And there is no more storm. It's perfectly peaceful and perfectly quiet. So firstly here, the sailors submit to the will of God by throwing Jonah out into the sea. But secondly, the sailors submit to God when they sacrifice and they make a vow to God. Verse 16 says that the men greatly feared Yahweh and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Now the foundation of their response is fear. They greatly feared Yahweh. And you can imagine the scene here. There's a storm that's raging. They know that Yahweh is causing the storm because of Jonah. They throw Jonah out. The storm stops. And suddenly there's this quiet and this calm. And suddenly this fear overcomes these 
sailors. It's completely peaceful outside, and they're absolutely terrified of what just happened. Right? Who is this God? Who is this Yahweh that even the sea and the wind obey him? And just as Chris mentioned a few weeks ago, that's exactly what happened with the disciples and with Jesus when they were in the boat and when they encountered a storm. In Mark 4, Jesus goes to sleep on the boat. There's a storm. The disciples are terrified. So they come to Jesus and they say, aren't you afraid? Save us. So uh, Jesus comes out. He rebukes the wind and the sea and it becomes completely still. And once it becomes completely still, the disciples are terrified. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the answer is that he's the same God whom the sailors in Jonah fear, and he's the same God whom we know as Yahweh. The difference is that in Jonah, God was not in the boat in physical form, but with the disciples, God, Jesus, was in the boat in physical form. The God whom the sailors feared was the same God whom the disciples feared. Just like Yahweh stopped the sea from its raging, Jesus stopped the sea from its raging. So when the sailors in Jonah see this power of God, they sacrifice to God. And the fact that they sacrifice to God, to Yahweh, puts them in the same line of followers of believers as other believers, followers of God in the Old Testament. Genesis 46, Isaac sacrifices to God. Exodus 24, Moses has his attendants sacrifice to God. In Leviticus 17, God gives instructions to Aaron and to other Israelites how to bring sacrifices to God. And this is what the sailors do here as well. They sacrifice to God, not to any God, not to any general God. They sacrifice specifically and exclusively to Yahweh. But in addition to their sacrifices, they also make vows. And this also puts them in line with other followers of God in the Bible. Isaiah 19 says that, uh, making a vow to God is a form of worship. Psalm 116.18 says that the psalmist, psalmist describes how he will fulfill his vows to God, which is a form of praise. And then in 1 Samuel 1, we see this actually as a real-life illustration where Hannah asks for a son. She prays to God for a son. And she says, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. She makes this vow to return the son back to the temple and to consecrate him to Yahweh. And in the same way, the sailors make a vow specifically to Yahweh. When the sailors heard the truth and they saw the power of God, they came to this crossroads and their decision, their response was to submit to God. And the final action that we see them doing here is to show their devotion to God. Well, let me just end with this. When we look at the sailors, we see that their fear of God prompts their prayer to God, which then prompts their devotion to God. So we see both their internal response to God and their external response to God. We see their faith and we see their works. And think about James 2.17, which says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. 
You look at the response of these sailors, and you can see that their fear was real, and their belief in God was real. Because their fear and because their belief and their faith was real, it followed with their submission and their devotion to God. And just like God orchestrated the events around the boat and the sailors and Jonah, God orchestrates the events in our lives in the same way. And he brings us into a situation where we face the reality, where we face the truth, and we have to respond whether to submit to God or not to submit to God. Now, for us believers who have submitted to God, we praise God for his mercy. For those who continue to reject God, you're facing the truth right now. And there's a decision that you have to make, whether to reject God or to submit to God. And Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God arranges the situation and the circumstances in our lives specifically to bring us to a point so that we see the truth and then we're faced with a question, how will we respond to this truth? Let's pray and praise God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we were far off, you saved us. Lord, as we look at this Narrative as we look at this real life example of how you did this with the sailors, our response is only to praise you. Lord, it's only the immense level of your graciousness that would do this. Lord, it's only your immense love that would do this. And our response is to praise you that you have done this. Lord, we thank you that you have left this example for us so that we can look at it, so that we can be encouraged by it and convicted by it. Lord, we do pray for all those who may not be believers here. Pray, Lord God, that you would convict their hearts, that you would confront them, that you would help them to see that there is a decision that they need to make and they will either harden their hearts or they will soften their hearts and submit to you. Lord, I do pray that in the end, your name is glorified in all this. Pray that your power may be known and that your name be glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen.